Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. I am standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 42 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. Today, the United States government announced new sanctions on Russian individuals and financial institutions, a direct response to the atrocities our teams have seen with their own eyes in Ukrainian cities such as Bucha and Borodyanka, where innocent Ukrainian civilians were bound and murdered, their bodies tossed out like trash. President Biden this afternoon saying this about the decision. Civilians executed in cold blood, bodies dumped into mass graves, a sense of brutality and inhumanity left for all the world to see unapologetically. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. Holding the perpetrators accountable, he said. Even accountability, we should note, if it actually were to ever come, cannot erase the tragic human cost of this war. And we should warn you, some of the images we will show you in today's broadcast are quite graphic and disturbing. Fighting is ramping up in eastern Ukraine, and Ukrainian officials say this is the aftermath of Russian shelling of a school where humanitarian aid was being distributed in the town of Vuladar, what appears to be blood on the ground and on the building. Local military leaders say at least, at least two people were killed in that attack. And this is what's left in Mariupol, one of Ukraine's most besieged cities, the Mariupol City Council says, that after the international backlash Russia faced over the atrocities in Bucha, Russian soldiers are now using mobile crematoriums in an effort to erase any evidence of their war crimes by disposing of the corpses of the innocent civilians they have killed. And the Mariupol mayor making this haunting comparison, quote, the world has not seen the scale of a tragedy like in Mariupol Since the Nazi concentration camps, the Russian fascists turned our whole city into a death camp, unquote. The Pentagon said today that by its assessment, Russian forces have now completely withdrawn from areas around Kyiv. But U.S. and Western officials are also warning Putin has not necessarily given up on trying to capture that capital city. The U.S. and its allies are now preparing for the possibility that Putin's army may try to reinvade the Kyiv region, if they win the military battles unfolding in the east of the country. CNN chief international anchor Christiana Mampour traveled to Borodyanka today. She joins me now live from Kyiv. And Christiana, full withdrawal from around Kyiv means we're now getting even more of a look at the barbarism and devastation that the Russian forces left behind. 
That's exactly right, Jake. And of course, in places like Bucha, where, as you say, the bodies were simply left on the ground, left in the open, places like Borodyanka, it's much more because of the relentless and indiscriminate bombings of buildings that have caused so many deaths there. And so we visited Borodyanka as, in fact, they begin now to try to start digging anybody's out of these apartment buildings and homes that we saw practically leveled. Welcome to Sasha's restaurant, it says. Only Sasha's is no more, nor are any of the apartments in this block above. A dining table and chairs, a jacket blowing in the wind still intact, the only visible reminders of the families who lived here. The crows caw above this city of Borodyanka. Perhaps they sense the death here. It is clear that the heavy destruction is mostly along the main streets. It appears the Russian armored columns simply opened up with heavy machine guns and artillery as they rumbled through town. Brick by brick, today the digging starts, trying to find civilians or their bodies buried beneath the rubble when even their basement shelters were turned into graveyards. On this corner, they're looking for at least four missing from this block alone, says Victoria Ruban, who's with the rescue team. We have never seen anything like this. It is very difficult for us, she says, and not only for us, but for the residents of Borodyanka. It is a great tragedy because of an ill-disciplined force with a license to kill. So this is Vladimir Putin's idea of liberating a fraternal brotherly nation. So either he's doing all this because he loves Ukrainians or, as many believe, because he's motivated by a rising hatred and anger at their westward-loving democracy, at their resistance and at their refusal to come under Russian control. And as an afterthought, a bullet to the head of Ukraine's cultural hero, the great poet Taras Shevchenko. Not even statues are immune. Amid all this destruction, the summary executions, the Ukrainian flag flies proudly in the central square. For good measure, these Ukrainian soldiers are pulling out a captured Russian tank that was dug in. They say they'll use this and anything else the invaders have left behind to fight them in the villages, in the towns, in the fields, and all the way back to the Russian border. Now, in order to achieve that, uh, Jake, which is what they say they want to do and they will do, many of the military analysts now, whether in NATO, whether around the world in the United States, say that right now is a crucial window of opportunity. Right now, as Russia is on the back foot, regrouping, trying to take the east, pushed back from Kiev, unable to take this city, pushed back from Chernihiv. Right now, if the West is serious about winning this war as a strategic objective, as an existential objective, now they have to flood the Ukrainians with all the military hardware and training and equipment they need if they are to hold the line in the east. Jake? All right. CNN's Christiana Mampour live in Kiev. Thank you so much. As always, President Biden this afternoon outlining the new package of sanctions the U.S. is imposing on Russia for what Biden calls war crimes in the Ukrainian city of Bucha. These new actions include freezing all U.S. assets of Russia's largest financial institution, Spearbank, and its largest private bank, Alpha Bank, banning any new investments in Russia by people in the United States, 
and new sanctions on Russian elites, including on Putin's two adult daughters. Just in one year, our sanctions are likely to wipe out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gains. We're going to stifle Russia's ability and its economy to grow for years to come. Joining me now to discuss is Dalip Singh. He's the White House Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics. Uh, Dalip, thank you so much for joining us. So we know the Russian military is targeting civilians. We've known now for weeks, for months, that they've been committing horrific acts. I have to say, I know that this is the strongest sanctions ever imposed on Russia, but I'm surprised that there are even any sanctions left to impose. Why hasn't the U.S. just hit the button to exact every possible economic punishment? Well, Jake, good to be with you. Um, You're right, the sickening brutality on display in Bucha. It's just the latest reminder of the despicable nature of Putin's regime. And look, we've taken four actions today that intensify what was already, as you say, uh, the most severe economic sanctions program ever levied on a major economy. Uh, let Let me walk through four of the actions. Um, the, first, the first thing we did is we imposed our most potent financial sanction on by far the largest financial institution in Russia. Uh, Sparebank is the main artery in the Russian banking system. It controls a third of all the assets in Russia's banks. Uh, and by blocking the, the bank, which means freezing all of its assets that touch the U.S. and preventing it from doing any business with the U.S., uh, what we're going to do is make sure there's less capital in Russia, lower growth and more isolation. The second thing we've done is we've banned any new investment into Russia, and that will make sure that the mass exodus of the private sector from Russia, more than 600 multinational companies and growing, uh, will endure. And and with the exit of those companies will also be the loss of private sector know-how, private sector skills, private sector talent, uh, and will ensure that the money going out of Russia doesn't get replaced by new money going in. The third action we took is we mm-hmm. tightened the screws on Russia's on the central bank sanctions we imposed on Russia. And so any money that Russia had in the U.S. banking system can no longer be used to honor its debt obligations. And that gives Russia a very stark choice. Either it has to come up with dollars that are held in Moscow to make its debt payments, or it will face default. If it defaults, that will cause generational harm to Russia in terms of its borrowing costs, the investment going into Russia, and its growth profile. It will become a financial pariah. And lastly, we added to the individual uh, sanctions, including Putin's daughters, Lavrov's wife, and a number of members of the Russian Security Council. Right, and, and that's powerful. But you did answer my question, which is, why weren't we already doing that? I mean, it's not as if uh, Bucha is the, the first bad thing that Putin has done in Ukraine in the last two months. I mean, why are we not just giving him the maximum, just a complete blitz? Well, first of all, Jake, we're, we're moving in lockstep with our allies and partners um, so today's actions are done in alignment with the EU and the G7. Uh, and second of all, sanctions by themselves are not a standalone solution. Um, they work when they're embedded in a broader strategy. And you know what those elements are. We're doing all that we can uh, to help Ukraine in its fight for freedom. Uh, we're doing all we can to fortify NATO's eastern flank. We're doing all we can to help Europe accelerate its diversification away from Russian energy. And it's the combination of all those actions uh, that gives us strategic leverage. And will ultimately, we hope, uh, lead to a, a diplomatic resolution of, this, of these atrocities in this crisis. Isn't it true that the only way to really deter him or to stop him from, from the massacres that are being committed against the Ukrainian people, and I'm meeting them here 
uh, in Ukraine. I'm meeting these people. I'm, we went to a Ukrainian military funeral today. Isn't it true the only way to stop them is to completely get the rest of the world to stop buying uh, Russian fuel? Isn't that really the only thing that can deter him? Look, that's the next, that's the next big step. We've already banned uh, Russian energy, Russian oil, Russian coal, Russian natural gas from the U.S. Uh, we, are, we are in discussions with the rest of the world to follow suit. You're right. Uh, oil and gas revenues are the main source of export revenue that Putin has left. Uh, and it, we think over time we are going to degrade Russia's status as a leading energy supplier. We work with Germany to shut down Nord Stream 2. We've cut off energy technologies that Russia needs to maintain its oil and gas production. Uh, and as I say, we took action to ban any imports of Russian energy from the U.S. So this is going to take uh, time, but, but ultimately... Ultimately, we think we'll close down any export revenues that Russia has through oil and gas. A senior administration official told CNN today that the U.S. is targeting Putin's adult daughters because the Biden administration believes Putin might be hiding some of his assets with them. Do you know exactly what Putin might be hiding with his adult kids? Well, this is a classic, uh, this is a classic ploy by the Russian kleptocracy. They do hide their assets with family members, with children, uh, with wives, in all parts of the global financial system. And they show up in the kind of assets that we're trying to seize. Luxury homes, private jets, uh, fancy cars. And so that's why we're designating family members of Putin, as well as uh, Minister Lavrov. Uh, these, these people also happen to have prominent roles in the Russian economy and in the Russian war machine. So they need to be held accountable. I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know when I tell you you might want to look into other relationships that Putin and Lavrov have if you want to look for other monies, maybe people who aren't in his immediate family, if you know what I mean? No options are off the table, Jake. All right. Talib saying thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Jake. How to house, feed, educate, and care for millions of new citizens in the matter of just weeks CNN's Dana Bash talks with the president of Poland. That's coming up. Plus, he was at a children's hospital an hour before it was bombed by Russian forces. What the doctors he works with are doing now. That's next. We're back with our world lead. CNN has obtained from a Ukrainian official new Horrific images of Russian forces shelling a children's hospital in Mykolaiv on Monday. You're watching the moment Putin's army bombed an ambulance outside that hospital, seemingly part of a barbaric pattern. According to the latest count from Ukraine's government, Russia has targeted at least 258 hospitals, 258 and 78 ambulances. Joining us now, Michel Olivier. He's the head of the Ukraine mission of Doctors Without Borders. His team of medical professionals witnessed firsthand a number of these incidents. Michelle, thanks for joining us. You're in Odessa right now, but you had a team of four doctors at the hospital in Mykolaiv when that bombing happened. How are those doctors doing now? Um, so we have a, a team of four people. All of them, they are safe. Uh, in fact, we were uh, attending or going to a meeting to uh, kick off some uh, primary healthcare activity in the city of uh, Mykolaiv. And uh, suddenly the hospital and the whole area uh, was facing a, a shelling. So they, they ran in a garage, they jumped in the pit and they tried to uh, get safe. Uh, however, the whole area 
uh, was uh, bombed. So we witnessed directly uh, an indiscriminated bombing of the uh, residential area of uh, Mykolaiv uh, in the middle of the day. And, and what else did they see other than the bombing? Was anybody, was anybody hurt? Was anybody killed in that bombing that they know of? So the uh, Mykolaiv Regional Council report nine killed and uh, 61 uh, other people injured. Uh, we can't confirm these, uh, these figures. So immediately after the, the shelling, uh, there is a gas leak and smell. So our four staff uh, ran away uh, to uh, escape the scene. And while they were uh, escaping, uh, they saw uh, dead bodies uh, on the road and a few uh, wounded. From what we can see, uh, there were several explosions uh, over uh, an area of a few hundred meters. Uh, there is no uh, huge crater uh, somewhere. Uh, so this let us think uh, to cluster bomb. So your team was there to meet with health authorities in that city. Were they still able to assess uh, what hospitals in that area, what their most urgent needs are? Mm. Uh, in fact, the situation in uh, Mykolaiv is uh, radically contrasting from one moment to the other. Uh, I'm sure that you have seen uh, devastated cities in Ukraine. Uh, in Mykolaiv, uh, even if the, the, the front line was there a few weeks ago, uh, the whole city uh, has been uh, preserved. So the, the situation is uh, alternating between uh, normal life moment with people going for coffee, uh, living uh, as usual, and for 10 minutes, uh, they are, um, there is this moment of extreme violence with bombing in the middle of the day uh, or in the middle of the city, and that lasts for 10 minutes. And this is uh, exactly uh, what we witnessed um, last Monday. How do you even begin to prepare uh, your medical professionals to, to deliver aid in a war zone uh, where there is absolutely no reluctance to target or kill aid workers? Yeah. Um, the, the first point is we try to be totally uh, honest and transparent with the, the risk that they, are, they might face. So I think that the, one of the key points is to, be, uh, uh, to share all the information uh, we have. Uh, so this is at individual level. Uh, after, for the institution, for the people, we always try to weight uh, the risk-benefit of what we are doing. And in this situation, is very uh, complex in Ukraine, as there is a robust uh, health system, there is a lot of generosity with a lot of supply uh, entering Ukraine, uh, there is a lot of staff well-trained, uh, hospitals are functioning. So to, to find uh, an area uh, in this situation and to have a uh, a big added value compared to these uh, indiscriminated bombing uh, is very difficult and complex for our association. And a reminder for our viewers, if they want to help the important work of Doctors Without Borders, you can give and take any contribution. Uh, you go to doctorswithoutborders.org to help. Michelle, Olivier, and Odessa, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and all the work you do. Uh, when bunk beds replace desks, turning schools into shelters to comfort Ukrainian kids and their families fleeing the ravages of war. That's next. We're back with our world lead in relief for hundreds of Ukrainians from the besieged city of Mariupol. Today, the Red Cross 
help these individuals reach the relative safety of Zaporizhia, some 140 miles away. These are just some of the more than 7 million internally displaced Ukrainians. And as CNN's Matt Rivers reports, housing, feeding and clothing these exhausted victims of Putin's war often happens only if an entire community rallies around them. The convoy gets loaded up several times a week. Workers with Hungarian Baptist aid making the several hour drive from Budapest, destination, Western Ukraine. Today, they're headed to Berehova, a quaint town just across the border that's become a magnet for Ukrainians fleeing the war. Upon arrival, supplies unloaded by some of the kids staying at this shelter, what used to be a school. Inside classrooms, bunk beds, replaced desks, and photos of former students hang on the wall above the tiny shoes of the kids staying in the room today, like little Yeva and her mom, Diana. They fled Kyiv a few weeks ago, leaving behind her husband to fight the Russians. She says, we stood there and cried at the train station. My daughter was so mad at him, she thought he was leaving us. He said, Yeva, come give me a kiss, but she wouldn't. Yeva just too young to understand the sacrifice her dad is making, like so many other children here, scarred by the war. Even in this safe place, air raid sirens still go off. So down here in the school's basement, they're using this as a bomb shelter, and the school's director says that they're coming down here on average a couple dozen times every week. Even though no bombs have fallen in this area, but when the children come down here, the director says so many of them are still traumatized. So for instance, the other day it was raining outside, there was a clap of thunder, and a lot of the children screamed, the director said, because they thought it was a bomb. Aid continues to flow into Berehova. In the beginning of the war, it was largely just a stop for refugees fleeing to other countries. Now, they're staying put. Those who are arriving, uh, they want to stay for the long term. And it uh, certainly uh, requires different kind of uh, hosting. For Hungarian Baptist aid, more refugees means more need for everything else, including helping hands. It's not really like a war. For me, I feel like it's a genocide of Ukrainians. Pharmacist Daniel Nagrudny came to help from Philadelphia, the son of Ukrainian immigrants. But if people come together and come to the country and try to help out, then something actually gets done. It's definitely the spirit at a nearby church where a tiny volunteer operation has ramped up to hundreds of meals served every day as refugees decide to stay long term. The reasons can vary, everything from hope that the Ukrainian army will prevail to simply not wanting to live in a foreign country. For Diana, back at the school, the reason to not flee to neighboring Hungary was simple. She says, we feel like we're closer, somehow closer to my husband. I will go back the moment it's safe for my children. And Jake, uh, you know, these people in this shelter were so traumatized by these atrocities that they're seeing in other parts of Ukraine. Many wouldn't even speak to us on camera. Even Diana would not give us her last name for fear that their loved ones in other parts of Ukraine could be targeted by the Russians. Jake. CNN's Matt Rivers in Budapest. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Is Putin essentially blackmailing all of Europe with this unprovoked war? Hear what the president of Poland has to say. Has to say. He spoke with my colleague CNN's Dan Abash exclusively, and that's coming up next.
And our world lead President Biden today said, quote, major war crimes are being uncovered in Ukraine and that, quote, responsible nations need to hold the Kremlin accountable from what, for what they're doing and for what they've done. Now, some of those responsible nations that Biden presumably was talking about share borders with Ukraine and bombs have fallen within miles of their land. My State of the Union co-host, Anna Bash, joins us now live from Warsaw, Poland, where she spoke exclusively today with the Polish president, uh, Andrzej Duda. And, and Dana, what did he tell you about the abject horrors happening next door? Well, Jake, uh, President Duda told me that Vladimir Zelensky is actually a very good friend of his, that they talk at least every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And President Duda said when he saw the images of President Zelensky touring Bucha, he saw the look on his face and saw the horror. President Zelensky says point blank, it's genocide. Do you agree? It is hard to deny this. Uh, of course, this is a crime which um, fulfills the features of a genocide, especially if you look at the context of different conversations uh, that are being conducted. We hear about the Nazification of Ukraine. It is nonsense. It is rubbish. It is an obvious black Russian propaganda. This is just a false looking for a false pretext in order to carry out a massacre, in order to kill people. And the fact that civilian inhabitants of Ukraine are being killed shows best what the goal of Russian invasion is. The goal of that invasion is simply to extinguish the Ukrainian nation. Your prime minister recently criticized French President Macron for continuing to talk to Vladimir Putin. He said nobody negotiated with Hitler. I'm not surprised that Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, in a situation where he saw the pictures from Bucha, uh, the massacre caused by the Russians, the murders which they committed, I'm not surprised that he uh, spoke out in a very emotional way, because this is a very emotional statement, a typical emotional statement. But it's hard to deny that for many years here in the European Union, we heard voices, one has to be in dialogue with Russia, we have to conduct dialogue with uh, Russia. Russia attacked Ukraine in 2014. That was the time when uh, Russia attacked Ukraine for the first time. Before that, Russia attacked uh, Georgia. But those attacks were not provoked. They were every time very brutal attacks. And every time I heard, we have to conduct dialogue with Russia. Dialogue with Russia has no sense. But if you don't talk to Vladimir Putin, how can the war end? One has to present very tough conditions to Vladimir Putin. One has to say, unless you meet these conditions, we do not have anything to talk about. We are going to provide support to Ukraine decisively. We are going to increase sanctions regime because if you conduct a dialogue uh, which does not achieve anything, it is only a game to buy time by Russia. Russia only gains because it presents itself in the world as somebody who wants to hold a dialogue with whom you can talk. Talk. However, on the one hand, they are saying that they want to speak, they are trying to show their civilized face, and on the other hand, they are murdering in the most savage way, uh, despicable way, and these are the facts. Do you think comparing Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler is appropriate right now? It is a fact that uh, Russian soldiers have murdered hundreds of people in Bucha in recent days. It is a fact that most probably they have also murdered hundreds of people in other places. It believes thousands of murdered people. So can you say that such a leader is a normal leader in the contemporary world? 
is it a leader of the contemporary world whom others could acknowledge and accept, or is he a criminal who has to be punished in a very severe way? I think the answer is obvious. I want to ask you about sanctions. The war in Ukraine now has been going on more than six weeks. Are these sanctions working? Of course, sanctions should be stronger, especially given what we were able to see in Bucha. There is a question how to stop that. And the sanctions regime should be strengthened. I have no doubt whatsoever about this. This is, of course, a very complex task. Uh, what would be most efficient would be um, such economic sanctions, which would block Russia the possibility to sell its carbohydrates first and foremost, uh, oil and gas. First of all, uh, oil, because oil is the basis from which Russia generates most of its income to the budget. Gas, to a lesser extent, uh, oil, crude oil, is of key importance. The problem, however, is that for some countries, well, uh, this is fundamental for them. The uh, German <clears throat> finance minister said today, at this point, energy sanctions would cause too much harm to Germany's economy. Well, this is a broader problem to us, the Poles, because right from the start, we were fighting against joint investments by Russia and Germany, investments in Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2. We were opposed to both of those pipelines because to us, they were not so much of economic nature, but they were obviously political projects. Uh, their goal was to uh, circumvent the territory of Poland, to bypass the Baltic countries, to bypass Ukraine, uh, so that uh, Russia could apply uh, gas blackmail against these um, countries in Central Europe, as it did against Ukraine at the beginning of the 21st century. So we protested against that all the time. Sounds like you're saying, I told you so, uh, about all of the dependence that Germany in particular built on Russian energy. The word blackmail, you believe that Russia is blackmailing Germany right now? I think that, uh, as a matter of fact, Russia is blackmailing not only Germany. Right now, Russia is blackmailing, in fact, the entire Europe. Uh, the fact that we're saying uh, it is impossible to impose embargo on Russian gas, it is not possible to impose embargo on Russian oil right away, yes, because Russia today is saying additionally, so pay me in rubles for that. Now I demand that you pay me in rubles. Why? Because Russia believes that this is um, profitable for her, that it's going to raise the value of its currency, that now amidst all those sanctions it is going to improve its economic situation. If you are asking me about sanctions, I believe these sanctions are going to be efficient in their majority, but they will bring effects in six months' time or longer time. Russian economy will feel them very strongly because we are speaking about delivery of uh, spare parts for the machines in Russia. R Russia is a part of the globalized economy in the world. And some 2.5 million refugees have crossed the border from Ukraine here to Poland. And President Duda is extremely proud of the way Poles have welcomed Ukrainians with open arms. They have tried to incorporate them, given them uh, information and given them the ability to have uh, to have issues here, that they have issues here in, in Poland that can get them fixed. Uh, they are staying mostly in private homes still, Jake. The question is, how long can this country sustain that kind of influx? The answer appears to be there isn't an answer yet. That's both from President Duda, who I spoke with, and the mayor of this big city where I am, the capital city of Warsaw. Jake. All right, Dana Bash, thank you so much. We should know more of your interview with the Polish president. We'll air this evening at 6 p.m., 8 p.m., and 10 p.m. Eastern. Dana Bash reporting live from Warsaw for us. Thank you.
so much. Coming up, a very personal side of this war and the toll it is taking on Ukrainian couples forced to put their country before their own families. Stay with us. In our world, the human impact of Putin's brutal war cannot be summed up just with numbers or of estimated deaths or injuries. It's also felt in the devastating emotional trauma of Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes and abandon their lives and in some cases take up arms to defend their country. CNN's Brianna Keeler uh, joins me now. And Brianna, you spoke with a family here in Lviv whose whose father is away uh, fighting on the front lines um, and the impact it's having on them. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. You know, for every person, every Ukrainian who is on the front line, there are so many more who are at home supporting them. They're worrying about them. And this is a war about them. It's about the future of their country, but it's also about the future of their families, including the family that we spoke to. What is on your mind? I feel angry. Sometimes I'm angry at him that he rejoined the army again. But more often, I'm angry at the very fact that this war is happening. My son was waiting for his dad to come back from the war eight years ago. Now my daughter has to wait. Back in 2014, after Russian forces first invaded eastern Ukraine, Luba held down the home front as well, while her husband Mikhail served for more than a year in the Ukrainian military. He's a veteran of war. He's on the short list of reserves that goes in the first wave. Mikhail received a call from his old unit, she says, asking him to join immediately. Luba, who is pregnant with the couple's third child, had been hoping that she would weather this war with her husband. Instead, he deployed the day after Russia invaded, and she moved nine-year-old Semen and five-year-old Yastina out of their home in the center of Lviv to her sisters on the outskirts of the city where they are safer. How are the kids doing? How do they make sense of it? My kids, they know that the war is happening. They know that their father is in the military. Saman is going through this as an adult. He understands everything. Yastina will sometimes run to me and cry and say that she's afraid her dad will be killed. But I always explain to her that our dad is big and strong. Yuliana, Luba's sister, isn't just hosting her niece and nephew. She's running supplies to the front line, to their father's military unit, just like she did for him back in 2014. It was a really funny story. I had to bring washing machines to the military unit because they didn't have a way to wash their clothes. This time, Yuliana trekked a thousand kilometers to deliver night vision goggles, long underwear, even a car and a drone to Mikhail's unit. She only saw him for a few minutes, long enough to snap these pictures. The front line was too dangerous to stay any longer. I was very worried when she went there the first time, a couple weeks ago, because the front line right now is not a clear line, because the airstrikes can happen anywhere. So the front line is very blurred. Even Pufa, the family dog, is a veteran of war. In 2014, Yuliana took Pufa, then a puppy, to serve with Mikhail's reconnaissance unit. She's seen here sleeping with him on a personnel carrier. <laughs> now Pufa comforts his children while he is away fighting. I think our dad is protecting all of us very much. And I know, I think that he didn't want to do this. But that's what he had to do. When he comes back, I want to buy a big cotton candy. And I don't want him to go to the war. And I want all of us to stay together. It's all they hope for. It's what they fear this war may take from them.
What do you worry about? That he will not come back. Luba, what are your hopes for the future? First of all, I hope that when it's time for the third child to see this world, that my husband will be back from the war, that the war will end by that time, and that the war will end with our victory. Because if we don't win this war, then probably in 15 to 20 years, my son will have to go to the next war and defend our country. Uh, Brianna, I'm, I'm sitting here watching this piece and thinking you are also a military spouse, your husband's in the army, at least the father of your children, and you have been pregnant as he went off to fight. It reminded me a lot of, of what you have gone through. Yeah, I, talking to her, I, I felt, and it's part of the reason why I sought out the story, I felt kindred with her in, in some ways. She said she was angry at her husband, which I think is natural <laughs> if displaced, you know. She's really angry at the war. She talked about how he would call her and tell her he's warm and he's getting good food, but it was kind of sporadic how he was calling her and I think she suspected, as I would in that case, that he's not telling her the full story, right? Um, but I will tell you, there were some ways where I would, there is no way I would compare myself because just the danger and the casualties in this war, just how sudden it's been and how horrific it has been and how widespread it's been, I can't even imagine what she's going through. And also the risk to her and her kids. That's uh, right. Which is not necessarily something that you have felt with your husband abroad in Afghanistan. Or That's whatever. exactly right. All right, Brianna Keeler, thank you so much. A very special report. We appreciate it. How using drones to make YouTube videos help train Ukrainian citizens to document evidence of war crimes. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 42 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with a new assessment from the Pentagon. Russian forces near Kyiv and Chernihiv have completely withdrawn, a U.S. defense official tells CNN. But what those Russians have left behind is a gruesome display of death and destruction. Innocent Ukrainian civilians bound, murdered tossed on the streets like trash. Now the U.S. is imposing new sanctions on Russian banks and some members of Russia's elite, including Putin's two adult daughters. And the Justice Department in the U.S. is helping to collect evidence for potential war crimes prosecutions. Still, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg had a stark warning for the rest of the world. He says even though Russia is repositioning its assault to the eastern region of Ukraine now, Putin has not given up, he said, on trying to capture the capital city of Kyiv. And he said as long as Putin wants the whole of Ukraine, this war could last for years. Let's bring in CNN's Fred Pleitkin, who's live for us in Kyiv, about 300 miles east of where I'm standing. And Fred, you spoke with some Ukrainian civilians who, before the war broke out, would fly drones to make YouTube videos. And now they're using those drones to hunt Russian tanks and to document the horrors that we are seeing on the streets around Kyiv. Tell us more. Hi there, Jake. Yeah, so many people were surprised that the Ukrainian military managed to beat back the Russians and, you know, beat them back pretty badly. And one of the reasons for that was, of course, ordinary Ukrainians taking up arms, but then also using their skills to act as force multipliers. A lot of that is coming out now uh, that the Ukrainians have pushed the Russians back. But unfortunately, as you've just reported, what's also coming out is that a lot of civilians were killed while the Russians occupied certain areas. That's something that we experienced and witnessed ourselves. So uh, 
I want to warn our viewers right now, what you're about to see is very graphic and certainly very disturbing. Be careful, just move, move, move from the road. It's like a scene from the gates of hell. The dead lay strewn across this highway west of Kiev, some still next to the wreckage of their vehicles as the dogs roam around looking to scavenge. This is what Russian forces left behind when they retreated from here. They organized ambush over there. Where are we going right now? Alexander Radzichovsky tells me these were civilians gunned down from this position where the Russians had placed a tank. And you can see it's actually building the shooting zone. Mm. You see? Yeah. And these cars, look, they're sort of in line. Mm. There's no cars here because mm. they will not let them come. They just shoot as soon as they approach. The Russian government denies targeting civilians. They call such allegations, quote, fake and propaganda. But Alexander is part of a drone unit, and they filmed one incident. It was March 7th, when the Russians were still in full control of this area, and a group of cars was driving down the highway. They turned around after apparently taking fire from the tank position. This car stops, and the driver gets out. Then this. He's raised his head above his head, and in this moment, he was shot by on this place. Two people were killed that day, Maxim Iovenko and his wife Ksenia, who was also sitting in the vehicle. The family has confirmed the identities to CNN. After the incident, the drone filmed Russian troops getting two further people out of the car and taking them away. It was the couple's six-year-old son and a family friend traveling with them, the relatives confirmed. Both were later released by the Russians. The soldiers then search Maxim's body and drag him away. This incident, both traumatizing and motivating for Alexander's drone unit. In normal life, before the war, we were civilians who liked to fly drones around casually and just like make a nice video, YouTube videos. But when the war began, we become actually vital part of the, of the, of the, of the resistance. Alexander sent us hours of video showing his team scoping out Russian vehicles, even finding them when they're hidden and almost impossible to spot, and then helping the Ukrainians hit them. We are eyes. We call eyes because with eyes you can see and you can report. And as soon as you see, you can conduct strikes, artillery, uh, airstrikes. How long does it take to get your information to the right places to then be able to act on the intelligence that you provide? In good time, it's about a matter of minutes. And sometimes a little mosquito can take out a whole herd of elephants. This is drone footage of Alexander's unit searching for a massive column of Russian tanks and armored vehicles And this is that column after the drones found it. Alexander tells me units like his played a major role fending off Russian troops despite the Ukrainians being vastly outgunned. We're agile as a territorial defense. We can, oh, we don't want to just like, it's it's suicide damage, we need to go. But the army, they have to stay. They're ordered to stay, they stay. They're dying, but they stay and they hold in this piece of ground. Nobody knows how many Russians died here, but the group says it was many taken out with the help of a band of amateur drone pilots looking to defend their homeland. And Jake, one of the things that that unit told me is they believed essentially while they were out here and while they were obviously conducting their operations, to them it was almost like the Russians were fighting a 20th century war while they were fighting a 21st century war because their unit was so agile and they were able to provide that information so quickly, it really helped the Ukrainian artillery pinpoint the Russian positions very, very quickly, and then obviously bring that firepower uh, to bear. Of course, that on top of the fact that the Ukrainian military also got some of those very modern U.S. and and, and other Western anti-tank weapons, that obviously made a big difference as well. But really, ordinary Ukrainians coming forward and using their skills also made a big difference. Jake? 
A fascinating story. CNN's Fred Pleitkin live for us in Kiev. Thank you so much. Back in the United States, the Biden administration announced that they are going to impose new sanctions, this time on Russian financial institutions and on elites, including Putin's two adult daughters. A senior administration official tells CNN that U.S. officials believe the Russian president might be hiding some of his considerable wealth with his daughter. CNN's MJ Lee is at the White House for us. MJ, what else can you tell us about these new sanctions? Well, Jake, let me just lay out what some of the biggest targets are from this announcement today that the U.S. Uh, is going to be imposing a fresh round of sanctions on Russia. Uh, we are talking about full blocking sanctions on Russia's largest financial institution, as well as uh, Russia's largest private bank. We are also talking about a ban and on all new Russia investments. Uh, this would come in the form of an executive order that the president would sign. Uh, and then there are the targeting of uh, individuals close to Vladimir Putin including his two adult daughters and sanctioning the daughter and the wife of uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, as well as a number of other Russian government officials. Now, when we heard the president talking about uh, all of this earlier today, he basically promised that the U.S. is ready to announce more punishments for Vladimir Putin as well as the Russian economy. Here's what he said. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. Now, of course, the idea behind going after Putin's daughters is that the belief is he might be hiding some of his assets assets uh, through some of his family members. Although I should note the White House is not saying right now whether they have an assessment of how much of his assets at this point are tied up and what he still might have access to, Jake. And MJ, a senior administration official also told CNN that these sanctions are not permanent. They can be reversed if the Kremlin changes course in Ukraine. Um, what does Putin need to do to see these sanctions re reverse? Is it a complete withdrawal? That's a very good question. And Jake, the reality is there is not some detailed roadmap that this administration has laid out for what exactly needs to happen in order for some of these sanctions to be rolled back. Uh, but as you know, one question that administration officials have grappled with and have put out there is what is Vladimir Putin's endgame? What is the point at which he says, OK, I'm recognizing that this war has been a failure. And just now in the White House briefing room, I asked Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, whether the U.S. has an assessment right now of what exactly Putin's endgame is. And what she said essentially is that they can't really get into Putin's mindset. That's a line that we've heard before from the White House. But she importantly stressed that they do not believe that Putin's strategy has changed, that even though some of the tactics that we are seeing on the ground might be changing, that the endgame and the goal, uh, broadly speaking, for Putin is to weaken Ukraine as much as possible. Jake. All right, CNN's MJ Lee, live for us at the White House. Thank you so much. We're joined now uh, by Luciana Schum and her 10-year-old son, Ivan. Uh, they were living in a town north of Kiev, but they left shortly after the war broke out. Luciana's husband stayed behind to fight. Uh, Luciana, how are you doing? How is your family? 
So uh, really, uh, I live uh, near Kiev, 20 kilometers, and near this uh, town Bucha, where the tragedy uh, was uh, some days ago, we uh, knew about it. And um, uh, I spent with my family, with my two sons, uh, several days in the shelter because um, my my village was bombing. And then we moved to another city near Kiev called Bila Tserkva, and also uh, this city was bombed. And uh, this nights in the shelter in the uncomfortable cold and my um, uh, children were very afraid uh, because of this and that's why we decided uh, to move to Lviv because uh, it's the west of Ukraine and uh, it's um, uh, uh, safer here but still we hear the air alarm alarms every day and uh, of course it's scaring uh, and uh, my husband, uh, he is staying in my village, uh, north to Kiev, and uh, he is defending in this uh, called territorial defense, where the volunteers, the men who stay there, they are like controlling this territory. Uh, and um, of course, I miss him very much. And uh, um, but this is the reality. Uh, and of course, I don't want to, to be the refugee. I don't want to go abroad. I want to return to my village and uh, to see my husband and to, to see my house. I am very uh, afraid uh, if it will be safe, my house. Uh, uh, and yeah. um, But still here... Yes, here I am the volunteer and I'm working for some initiatives and helping people and uh, evacuating uh, people from these regions. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I can say that my motivation is to do everything to help now uh, Ukraine to uh, to close, uh, to, to, to speed up this victory of, of our country. And um, we, are, we are really afraid yeah, we'll that this war will... Uh, continue for years. It's, it's awful. Luciana, have you been able to talk to your husband? I know he stayed behind to fight. Is he okay? Tell us, uh, has, has, has he told you what he has been able to see? Oh, he he's okay. Uh, we are happy that uh, everything is fine. And uh, actually, Russian troops they uh, went uh, from our region uh, some days ago, and now it's uh, quite uh, safe and uh, quiet in our village. Because uh, a week ago, it uh, all the time uh, there were explosions uh, and uh, damages, and even uh, two years old uh, um, boy was. Uh, died uh, um, because of the explosion. Uh, so uh, the situation was very hard, very difficult. But now we hope that uh, uh, in Kiev uh, Ky- it will be more safer and probably will uh, go home in uh, some weeks. Ivan is sitting next to you. He's 10. Uh, you have another son, Taras, who's four. How do you explain to them what's going on? They understand the situation that uh, Russia is the aggressor country and uh, we have uh, this war because uh, 
because this uh, country attacked us and uh, they understand everything, uh, these uh, alarms and uh, um, a lot of people that died. So we see this all the time in the news and we cry about these uh, children because uh, it's already 160 uh, children died and it's e even not the full information because we don't know in Mariupol what is going on uh, and uh, the things may, may be um, more awful when we will know uh, what's going on in Mariupol. Uh, so um, my children, of course, they are very afraid about this, but they uh, believe that Ukraine will be the winner. You, uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, you, you are working, uh, doing charitable work, trying to help out uh, specifically with the charitable foundation Library Country, which raises humanitarian aid for libraries, for librarians. Why, why is that important to you? Uh, I work uh, for this organization already for five years uh, and we're supporting libraries, uh, uh, but now in this situation it is more important uh, that people uh, should be in a safe place uh, and that's why we uh, gather these donations from, uh, and for, from abroad and from Ukrainians and um, helping people to uh, go out from these territories. Uh, for example, today I met the librarians from Mykolaiv. Uh, it's on the south of Ukraine and uh, uh, she was very afraid because she has the um, daughter who is ill and uh, the, uh, her health is being worse because of this explosion and this stress all the time and we are helping now her to with the money uh, first of all to buy some essential things because they are living without uh, anything, without clothes only with documents and it is very very stressful for people because they don't know if their house will uh, still be and um, that's why we are trying to help them uh, not only with money but with psychological help we are working with uh, psychologists uh, yeah. uh, and therapists yes and um, we are speaking um, with uh, librarians from Mariupol and from Trostenets, uh, from Irpin from all these cities that um, had this very bad situation and this strategy with this uh, killing people. Uh, and actually, uh, we heard that uh, Russians, they killed and teachers and teachers from kindergarten and librarians, first of all, because these people, they are bringing uh, children, uh, bringing up children and uh, that's why they are the first like people um, who is uh, yeah. in danger. That's why, yeah, we are trying to help these yeah. librarians and also teachers. Uh. Luciana Shum, thank you so much. Yvonne, thank you so much. You were very well behaved during this entire interview. Really appreciate it. Putin is trying to destabilize Europe by forcing Ukrainians to flee their homes. How European countries are helping the fight by opening their borders, plus the toll of this brutal war. It can be seen on the streets right here in Lviv. Earlier today, I went to a military funeral. See what we witnessed. That's next. We're back from Lviv and our world lead cemeteries here are now being forced to find new land in which to bury soldiers killed defending their country against Putin's bloody assault. Today, we attended a Ukrainian military funeral as families and the community here in Lviv 
said goodbye to loved ones who had enlisted in the military just a few weeks ago. Gravediggers at Lykachiv Cemetery in Lviv, western Ukraine, today had to break ground in a fresh field to make room for the new war dead, repurposing the cemetery's adjacent World War II memorial to find space for the influx. Today, it's Ukrainian Army Sergeant Ulbivok Yacheslav, 43, killed March 28th, and Private Hudzilak Lubomir, 33, killed on April 1st. Both killed in Lohansk in the Donbass region. Both men called to service after the Russians invaded. The soldiers' families started this grim day at the Saints Peter and Paul Garrison Church in Lviv. As their caskets passed the crowds on the way into the church, their loved ones wept for those whom they lost to Putin's invading army. The sounds of grief combined with that of prayer. Inside the formerly Jesuit church built in the 1600s, locals have wrapped historic statues to protect them from debris in case of expected Russian shelling. After the service, a military tribute as mourners paid respects and gave flowers to the families, flowers always in even numbers. Ruslan Stefanchuk, the presiding officer of the Ukrainian parliament, basically the speaker of the house, stopped by to honor the fallen. I come here and uh, all my honor and all my heart I, I put there. The Russia is guilty for everything, crimes, for everything, uh, genocide, what they do in my land. I want the whole world knows that uh, uh, we never forget for nobody. The church is right next to this monument to famous and beloved Ukrainian poet Taras Shevchenko, who was exiled by Russia's czar in the 1800s for advocating for Ukrainian independence from Russia and for human rights. One of Shevchenko's most famous poems, Zepovit, or Testament, reads, When I am dead, bury me in my beloved Ukraine, my tomb upon a grave mound high amid the spreading plain. Cars, vans, and buses full of mourners traveled the short distance to the cemetery. Caskets were unloaded, prayers offered. The ceremony of a burial has been simplified and made shorter in order not to decrease the morale and the spirit of our other military. Every day we have two, three uh, burials here in Lviv. That is the price for our victory. And the military paid tribute with instruments of both art and instruments of war. We say heroes never die. We bury the body, but the glory of these people will live forever in our hearts and in our history. A spokesman for the city would only say dozens when asked how many locals have been killed fighting to defend their homeland from the latest Russian threat. The spreading plain here, next to Lykachiv Cemetery, spreading now in order to make room for the dead. Coming up, how Putin creates refugee crises purposefully, using innocent and desperate people in an effort to destabilize neighboring countries.
Topping our world lead today, nearly one in 10 Ukrainians has fled to neighboring countries. One in 10, desperate to find safety and stability. More than half of those refugees have escaped to Poland. That's obviously straining available resources, as CNN's Kyung La reports for us now. Some experts believe this has long been Vladimir Putin's strategy. Poland is already waging a war with Russia. It's just not the kind you imagine. Nearly two and a half million Ukrainian refugees have crossed into the safety of Poland as war ravages their country. Packing Poland's arenas, lining up for government benefits, and sending their children to public schools. These innocent faces are part of Vladimir Putin's war of mass migration. It's a kind of a callousness that we just don't understand here. Retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is known as a crucial witness in former President Trump's first impeachment proceedings. But he was also a child refugee from Ukraine, whose family moved to the U.S. in 1979. Refugees have been a weapon for a long time. Russia has used refugees as a weapon for years. How do you deploy refugees as weapons? Well, you bomb cities, and those cities result in civilian populations, uh, women and children in particular. What is the theory behind that? Well, they're weaponized just by the mere fact that these are large numbers of people flowing into a country that is not prepared to handle refugee camps that has to you know, now uh, spend funds on, on those refugees. The alleged goal destabilized Poland, a NATO country, from within. But that hasn't happened yet. Poland, which was having a mixed record with regards to you know, democratic uh, activities and democratic backsliding, has actually uh, you know, kind of gone back to its roots. It has been extremely welcoming to the Ukrainian population, welcoming Ukrainians into their homes as members of the family. That's, to Putin, probably unexpected. But Warsaw's mayor says the pressure on his country grows by the day. Putin wants to destabilize Europe and the whole Western world. I mean, he miscalculated because he thought that he's going to divide the Ukrainian society. He lost. He wanted to divide us in the West. He lost. We are also waging a war against his effort to destabilize us. And we have to prove to him that we stand united, that we share the burden. We're just so thankful to Poland, says Marina Lesik, something we hear again and again from Ukrainians. Nearly six weeks into this war, they hope that goodwill lasts. Well, there has not been any outward sign in that break of solidarity. But remember, we're just six weeks into this war, Jake. The concern is, is that if there is another surge in migrants, another surge of refugees coming across the border into Poland, none of them will be turned away. But the question is, is will they be able to provide the services that they have so far? The Warsaw mayor saying that the international community has got to help. Jake. Kyung La reporting for us from Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. From Russia's invasion to another scene of war. Coming up, an Afghan-American naval reservist who spent months held captive by the Taliban. We broke the story for you when he was finally freed, and he'll join us for his very first interview since his release. That's coming up. Finally, some positive news for you today. We're going to stay in our world lead, but we're going to move southeast to Afghanistan and bring you a CNN exclusive, the consequences of that very different war. After more than 100 days in captivity and months of intense negotiations by the Biden administration with the Taliban, 
Afghan-American naval reservist Safi Raouf has finally been freed by the Taliban. 27-year-old Safi and his brother Anis Khalil were detained in December while running an organization that provides humanitarian aid to Afghans. They work to help evacuate people after Taliban forces seized Kabul last year. Safi, along with his girlfriend Sami, join us now exclusively for his first interview since the Biden administration secured his release on Friday. And, and first of all, Safi, let me just say, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, this has been such an ordeal, and I've been following it uh, and keeping in touch with everybody. How does it feel to be back home? How does it feel to be united with Sammy and your other loved ones after being spent after spending so much time being held against your will by the Taliban? Uh, thank you, Jake, for having me. It's uh, such an incredible feeling. Uh, I've never felt like this before. And uh, I hope I never have to feel like this again. And I'm so glad and so lucky to be back. Uh, so incredibly grateful to everybody that uh, was part of it, and uh, including yourself. Um, thank you. And uh, it's uh, an incredible feeling. It hasn't settled in yet. Uh, I hope one day I'm sitting on my couch just watching television. And finally, I can realize that oh, I'm back and I'm back in my home. How were you and your brother and niece treated there? What was it like? Uh, you know, I want to uh, simplify it and for, for everybody. And it's, it was being captive. Everybody uh, knows what that means. Uh, however, this was very different. Uh, you know, people would say that we were in prison, but, you know, in prison people get some rights, uh, including uh, going outside you know, getting the, a glimpse of the sun, a glimpse of the s- sky. Uh, when, the place where we were, it was in a basement, a uh, very small room, uh, eight feet by eight feet, and the ceilings were about 12 feet tall, had a metal door that closed completely, uh, and ha- 24-7 we were in that room until about 70 days. Um, we were taken to uh, the bathrooms. All of that was under... A guard, so it was uh, it was much different than a prison. So it, the isolation was getting to us. The not being able to talk to anybody that was uh, the most difficult part. Sami, I mean, how have the last several months been for you, knowing that Safi was at the mercy of this brutal and oppressive regime? It was, of course, uh, incredibly difficult, but but you know, pales in comparison to what what Safi and Anis were going through, and I think that. On this side, um, you know, we felt uh, fortunate that at least we had a mission. We had to, to do something. Um, and, you know, poor Safi and Anis, uh, who are so used to being active and helping, were, were stuck where they were. So, you know, um, uh, Zabi, uh, who is uh, Safi and Anis's brother, um, myself, our teammate Alex Plitzis, uh, our team at Human First Coalition, and so many others um, sort of banded together alongside the U.S. State Department, the British government, the Qatari government, uh, to work together to um, try to secure uh, his release. Um, so extremely difficult, but we're really grateful to, um, to be on the other end. And Safi, you were in Afghanistan uh, because you and your brothers founded, uh, as your girlfriend just mentioned, the Human First Coalition, which provides humanitarian aid. You were working to help people, help Afghans. And you also had worked to evacuate people desperately trying to flee Afghanistan, much like uh, the other U.S. prisoner currently still 
uh, being held in Afghanistan there to help people. Um, why is it so important to help people in Afghanistan to you so much so that you, you risked your safety? Uh, you see, this is uh, every story I looked at during this whole ordeal, it tells my own story. Uh, I was born in a refugee camp. I was a refugee for 17 years in Pakistan. You know, the Russian war uh, forced my family to flee Afghanistan and then um, live in a, a refugee status in Pakistan, uh, living there for 17 years, and then uh, finally being able to come to the United States. So looking at every one of those uh, uh, individuals, the children, women, men, uh, people, vulnerable people, minorities, all of those population, everyone I looked at, I saw myself in them. And it was, I just couldn't take it. I could not sit back and watch this unfold and people suffer, uh, people who lost everything overnight. People lost jobs, people lost their um, their living, people lost homes, people lost um, a way to feed their families. So I couldn't just sit back here uh, living a cushy life in Washington, D.C. and uh, watching all this on television. So I had to spring into action. And not only that, but some of those people uh, I have worked with and I know them personally. And so I couldn't just sit back and uh, watch. And I, that, that, that's... And, Throughout my life, every time I have ever seen, and it's it's because of my parents that I have always sprung to, to action whenever there is a, a crisis going on. So uh, putting my life on the line was the least I could do. Safi and Sami, we're so glad. We're so glad that you're reunited. Thank you so much for telling your story. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. All right, talk to you soon. Coming up next, the shrinking supply now threatening critical resources in western parts of the United States. Stay with us. We're back with our national lead and our Earth Matters series. A critical water source in the western United States is draining at an alarming rate, according to a recent report. Lake Powell, part of a system that supplies water for more than 40 million people, as CNN's Bill Weir reports for us now, communities are trying to adapt as fast as the water is drying up. Just a couple years ago, this part of Lake Powell was pretty enough to put in the brochure. But today, there is no water, only sand. You can't paddle around Lone Rock anymore. If you haven't been out west in a while, haven't seen the state of the Colorado River and its reservoirs, you would be shocked. This is what Powell looked like just last spring, when you could still float around Lone Rock, but the satellite shows it losing island status as the lake level fell over 40 feet. And the lake used to go, used to go half a mile around the corner. And now it starts way back here. I cannot believe this. While hurricanes, floods, and wildfires can upend your life in a moment, Droughts are slow motion disasters, and this one is now in its 23rd year, with the region's population booming and another winter without enough snow, there are no signs of relief. But when you are houseboating on what's left of Lake Powell, it's still gorgeous. It's still so easy to forget that just since the mid 80s, the water level has dropped 177 feet. That's like 10 of these yachts stacked on top of each other. This is a temporary dock to get us access to the, 
to the marina. So the tourism industry has no choice but to adapt, making ramps longer as the lake gets lower. This was, was connected straight up there, so. At one point the, we would have been high enough that that would have been a, a that, straight angle. Yeah. This is not a decade or two, this is a year or two since it's dropped. Yeah, this is within two to three years. If it continues to go down another 10, 15 feet, we might have to shut down. For Max Lapicus, the changing canyons means more people eager to explore them in his rental kayaks and paddle boards, but not enough safe places to put them in. And he knows that big picture, 40 million people and their animals and crops in seven states in Mexico depend on Colorado River water, not to recreate, but to live. Man-made climate change, um, I do believe, is a thing to a certain extent. Uh, but I do believe the Earth goes through cycles, and this could just be another cycle. But I don't see any good evidence of it getting any better anytime soon. In a first-of-its-kind Gallup poll, one in three Americans say they've been personally affected by severe weather the past two years. And for those who have, regardless of party, they are much more likely to say the climate crisis demands action. But only 3% say they've experienced drought. This may be because for most, tap water keeps flowing. And here, houseboaters keep coming. What do you say to someone who sees this as proof, alarming proof of sort of a man-made climate crisis? Some of it is man-made, there's no doubt about it. You've got more users using the water out of the Colorado River. You've got more, you got more of everything than you had 50 years ago. It's that simple. Would you label your business a victim of drought? We've had to change the way, obviously, the way we do a lot of things. Uh, at this point, I would not say we're a victim. Yeah. I would say we're an adapter. Yes, he says he'd rather be known as an adapter, and I guess that's the rule going forward in the southwest United States, Jake. To adapt is to survive out here. Uh, places like Las Vegas are doing an amazing job when it comes to conservation. They'll, they'll even pay a homeowner to tear up their lawn, rethinking everything they know about water use and, and doing a great job. But the growth is just unstoppable. You know, the population in Arizona especially is growing, Jake. Among one of the desperate plans, uh, they're thinking about desalinating water in the Sea of Cortez, giving that to Mexico in exchange for Mexico's share of the Colorado River. Uh, so many moving pieces with treaties that go back, you know, just after the Civil War. But this is the new normal uh, in the West, Jake. And attitudes about it, as you can see, change as people experience the pain, which unfortunately is going to spread. All right, Bill Weir with that important report from Lake Powell, Arizona for us. Thank you so much. Back in Washington, D.C., breaking news on Capitol Hill. The House of Representatives is about to cast a major vote involving two former aides to Donald Trump. That's next. Our live coverage of Putin's war on Ukraine continues in just moments, but we do want to cover some breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Any moment, the House of Representatives is expected to vote on recommending criminal contempt of Congress charges against two former Trump White House advisors. Let's go straight to CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, what are we expecting to happen here and to whom? 
Well, Jake, these are two close advisors to the former president. Dan Scavino was, of course, the deputy uh, chief of staff. Peter Navarro uh, was a former trade advisor to the former president. Both of them, uh, according to the committee that's investigating the January 6th attack, both of them were deeply involved in some of the former president's efforts to try to overturn the, the 2020 election results. In the case of Scavino, we know he was extraordinarily close. He would have been witness to many of, uh, of what the many of the events that led up to January 6th, many of the efforts by the former president to orchestrate this uh, this effort to, to, to stop the, the certification of the vote on January 6th. As far as Peter Navarro goes, uh, we know he was also involved in trying to orchestrate with st with people, uh, Trump supporters in the states uh, on this very issue. Now, uh, both of them have declined to cooperate with the committee. Uh, both of them say that uh, it's not clear that Joe Biden, the, the, the current president, has the right to waive executive privilege. And so that's one reason why they're refusing to cooperate with this committee, Jake. Evan, the Justice Department still has yet to act on the previous criminal contempt of Congress recommendation from the House against former right. Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Is, is there any reason to think they're going to act this time? Look, I mean, 114 days since they referred the Mark Meadows, uh, ref to made the, the Mark Meadows referral to the Justice Department. We asked uh, today, uh, Merrick Garland, the, uh, the attorney general, about this, and he said that they're still uh, doing the work, they're following the facts and the law. So it's probably going to take some time, Jake, before we know. All right, Evan Perez with that breaking news. Thank you so much. The southeastern United States is bracing for another round of severe weather. This hour, a new tornado watch was issued for parts of Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. More than 40 million Americans in the region could see heavy rains and damaging winds. This comes a day after severe weather in the south left two people dead. Yesterday alone, there were nearly 400 tornado reports across four states in the U.S., Mary Edwards took this video from inside her car near Savannah, Georgia. She said, quote, to see it right before you is humbling, unquote. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back at 9 p.m. Eastern this evening for CNN Tonight with more from Lviv and from our reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you in a few hours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.